The Irish argue that their island's mythology is as interesting as that of ancient Greece or Rome. The oral traditions of the ancient Celts and the scribes of the Middle Ages provide a fertile landscape for understanding Ireland from the perspective of its Celtic roots. We've invited a couple of Irish guides, Stephen McPhillamy and Joe Darcy, into our studio to share their favorite legends and myths of Ireland and the places you can visit on the island they call home. Joe and Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. It is a big part of going to Ireland, this vivid folk culture, mythology, and, and so on. Stephen, Ireland is rich in legends. Tell us an example of one that you like. My favorite is Cú Cullen. He was the greatest Celtic warrior of them all. Any visitor who goes to Dublin will go to O'Connell Street and they have the general post office there where the 1916 rebellion happened. There's a beautiful bronze statue of this glorious Celtic warrior, the epitome of Celtic Irish manhood. But he's dying and there's a black raven on his shoulder and he's got a sword in one hand and the raven is there because his father was the Celtic god of the sky who was coming to earth in the form of a raven. And when he was young, he was called Satanta and he killed a, the most ferocious Irish wolfhound. One day he played hurling the ancient Irish game that the Celts played and the wolfhound attacked him and he killed this wolfhound with, by hitting a round little ball like a baseball and stuck it in his throat. The hound's owner was called Cullen and Cullen came out and said, you've killed my dog, my guardian, my ferocious hound. Who's going to guard me now? And young chivalrous Satanta said, I shall guard you for the rest of your life and I shall be called Coo Cullen, which means the Hound of Cullen. Whoa. See, now, I've walked by that many times and I've never really appreciated it. It sort of enlivens your experience when you know the stories. Did you learn that in school? Did your parents teach it to you? Did you read a book? How would you know these kind of legends? Yes, I learned it in school. But in the 1800s, we had this Celtic revival and uh, people like William Butler Yeats and other great artistic Irish people brought these legends back to life in poetry and in songs. So we learn about them in school, but we also hear about them in poems and songs oh, so all the time. So you sing about it, so it comes up in your music. All the time, yeah, and right. also in our art. Joe, that was fun to hear Stephen's yeah. myth. Can I add just a bit? The whole Cúcullan saga is called the Ulster Cycle. Mm-hmm. And one of my favourite parts of the Ulster Cycle is the men of Ulster were gathered at uh, their big games and the king of Ulster boasted loudly that his two horses could outrun anything in the kingdom. And one drunken minor chief close by said, my wife could run faster than those. So the king made him prove it. And his life would be forfeit if the woman didn't win the race. Fortunately for this man, he was married to a woman with a little bit of magic. And she won the race, but she was also forced to run naked. And she was heavily pregnant. And when she collapsed over the line, having beaten the two horses and saved her husband's life, she gave birth to twins, who then went on to have legends of their own. But a goddess named Maka was looking down and she was not happy with this treatment of a pregnant woman. So she called a curse on the men of Ulster. And the curse was that every year for a foreseeable future, for three or four days in a particular month, the men of Ulster would be confined to bed with the pangs of childbirth. So I always get a great reaction from the women on the coach. <laughs> I, I would bet. But I was just amazed that you guys both know both of these legends. And that right there is just scratching the surface of what mm. you guys know. It's a deep appreciation of the history and the heritage and, and the mythology. And it goes way back. So you do need to have kind of an understanding. First of all, how far back do those stories go? It's impossible to tell because they were only handed down in an oral tradition. We, one of the uh, very influential people in Celtic or Gaelic society was the storyteller, the bard. Before uh, Christianity arrived in Ireland, we had no written language in right. Ireland. So the uh-huh. stories were not written down until the 6th, 7th and 8th century. 
And then they were written by monks, sometimes with a little bit of embellishment to make it all appear Christian, sometimes right. not, you know. But. Right. Yeah, the fact that they weren't Christian obviously dates it a bit that they were 2,000 years right. ago. And in the stories, you see, it talks about the types of weapons they used. So there's some bits of contemporary evidence there that would put this to around 500 B.C., 500 B.C. Now, now, Stephen, when we go back to 500 B.C., we have all this movement to the peoples. And just very briefly, give us sort of an overview. You've got Angles, Saxons, and Celts. And then you got Normans and Vikings. Yes. So just kind of define how all that mixes together. Yes. Important to say, though, that the British Isles, or the British and Irish Isles, at this time that we're talking about, when Cuchulain was running around, were all Celtic generally. See, that's fundamental. It was all Celtic. And then what happens? The Celts had an empire that stretched from Croatia and northern Italy all the way through France, down into Spain and up into Britain and Ireland. But they didn't have any common king. or We were, right. a, we were a cultural empire. There was no political empire. Because so Galicia in Spain and Brittany and France, they're also Celtic. Celtic, exactly. Okay. Okay. So the Romans went to war with the Celts, which Celt comes from Celtoi, which is Greek for a dirty, smelly barbarian or something to that effect. Right. And they, they, uh, they started crushing us and sending us into the fringes, like up into Brittany, up into Galicia that you just said. And then when they conquered Scotland. into Scotland and Wales and also Cornwall in the south of oh, England. Yeah. And they never came to Ireland, the Romans. So the Celtic culture lived on there, whereas in the rest of the countries, it became more a fringe so culture. So the, the Romans and, and later, what are the Angles and the Saxons then? Uh, they were the Germanic tribes who came into Britain after the Romans were... Oh, were, okay. were on, so the Romans the pushed the Celts and then the Angles and the Saxons took that land that the Romans were running after Rome fell. Yes, the Celts don't have a connection in, uh, to the Romans or to the Angles and the Saxons who are Germanic. So and, the Angles the, came over and made Angle land, England. Yes, now then you got the Normans and you got the Vikings. The Vikings came first and then the Normans. Yes, and the Normans, of course, are descended from the Vikings who came from Scandinavia down into northern France. Okay, so really it's that movement from people up in the north that came and they were just warrior tribes and they yes. would terrorize and, and, and settle different areas. So all that works together. And today, when we want to travel around Ireland, let's just talk about some of the sites you might see. Joe, if you're driving around Ireland, you want to see different kinds of mysterious sites, Stonehenge age sites, sites that go pre, back to these days. Pre-Stonehenge, yeah. We have yeah. some remarkable Neolithic monuments in Ireland. The most famous of them would be Newgrange. It's only uh, less than an hour's drive north of Dublin. And then and then we, we know about stone circles in England, in Ireland. Uh, we have lots of stone circles. Uh, I know of one, just a small stone circle. We know nothing about it other than mm -hmm. it's there outside uh, the town of Kenmare. Well, and when you when you travel around Dingle Peninsula, for example, one of our favorite places in the southwest of Ireland, it's like an open-air archaeological museum. Everywhere you look, there's these mysterious stone structures that date back to, um, you know, over a thousand years ago. And, and Celtic crosses, to me, are just very evocative. The Celtic cross, that's uh, the early Christians in Ireland, they used the mythology that was already there and the worship systems that were already there, and they incorporated them into Christianity and the Celtic cross incorporates the sun, a circle, mm. into the crucifix. And that's... Is that a way to make pagan people a little more comfortable with the yeah, new religion? to incorporate their, yeah. not necessarily worship of the sun, but their belief that the sun yeah. provides everything that's good and bad. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Celtic and ancient Ireland. Our guides are Joe Darcy and Stephen McPhillamy. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Brent is on the phone from Columbus in Ohio. Brent, thanks for calling. Hi, everyone. Thanks for taking my call. 
Yeah. Hi, Brent. How's your uh, experience in Ireland when it comes to, uh, you know, mysterious bits of the past? Well, I'm actually planning a trip to Scotland and Ireland coming up, and I've read so much about the fairy forts and fairy mounds and some of the fairy gardens, and I'm really interested in where I might be able to best experience or see some of that, and how do I respectfully bring that up as a topic, because I understand there might be some a little bit of some superstition around that, and how I bring it up might be uh, kind of important. Stephen, any thoughts for Brent? Brent, it's good that you've asked the question because there is a little bit of sensitivity around it. There's people that you would say, can you show us where the ferry fort is? And everybody will know where the ferry fort is, but not everybody will believe in it. But we do have a lot of respect for it, so it's good that you're going to be sensitive about it. People will embrace you too, and there's people in every parish, every village in Ireland who'll be happy to take you to the ferry fort and share the legends with you, but also tell you the doom that awaits, dare you upset the ferry fort. Because you took me to a place, Stephen, in, in Dingo, where the road was straight and then it actually went around the ferry fort. It could have continued to go straight, but you didn't want to disturb it. That's right, yeah. And you say that popping up everywhere, people changing road directions and not, not wanting to cut down hawthorn trees in the middle of a field and certainly not wanting to damage a stone throw. So, so Brent should say when he's talking to his Irish friend, excuse me, is there a, I mean, <laughs> is it okay to ask for a ferry fort? I would just simply say, can you sh- direct me to the nearest ferry fort? <laughs> in the legends of Ireland, Brent, there was a people who lived in Ireland maybe 4,000 years ago and in Irish folklore, they're known as the Tuhete Danu, the people of the tribe of Danu, and they were a magical people, and they controlled the land. And then uh, Ireland was invaded by the Milesians. Despite their magic, the two of Danu were defeated and agreed to settle Ireland between the two of them. The Milesians, they got all the land above the earth, and the two of Danu were banished beneath the earth. Oh, there you go. And the Milesians thought they had the best of the deal until they discovered if they didn't pay homage to the people who were below the ground, then their crops would be destroyed. So, so Brent, be careful as you travel around <laughs> Ireland. Thanks for your call. <laughs> Thank you. We're celebrating the mysteries of ancient Ireland on Travel with Rick Steves with Joe Darcy. He provides custom walking tours of his home base in Dublin. And tour guide Stephen McPhillamy also operates a bed and breakfast on the harbour in Dingle. Websites to our guests are included with each week's show notes at ricksteves.com radio. Celtic crosses, to me, are just very evocative. We actually find those in some Dark Age monasteries and so on. Um, I wouldn't call them Dark Age monasteries because... Uh, Europe was in the Dark Ages. Europe Ireland was in the Dark Ages. Ireland, was, Ireland the... was not. Christianity was flourishing in Ireland in the 6th and 7th and 8th century. So that was called the Age of Saints and Scholars. Yeah, the Island of Saints and Scholars, yeah. How, how was it that Ireland was the Island of Saints and Scholars? I think it's because we hadn't been affected by the Roman Empire. Christianity was new to Ireland in the 5th century. Mm -hmm. And how or why St. Patrick and his fellow missionaries had got such a grip on the Irish psyche. But the Irish people became Christians in the 6th, 7th century and they became the most Christian country in Europe. The Dark Ages in Europe is when Christianity had taken a hit Mm -hmm. after the collapse of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. And after after the Roman Empire fell, Irish monks then went back over to Switzerland and uh, to Italy and set up monasteries and began to teach people things that they had forgotten after they were, you know, crushed by the Germanic tribes. So, so they, they opened, brought it back. They brought back civilization. There's a great book called How the Irish Saved Civilization. We always say a very modest title, 
but they came back into Europe and brought light back into the dark ages of Europe. Not to say that Europe was completely in darkness, but if you grow up in Ireland, you're led to believe that we re-enlightened Europe again. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Celtic, ancient, mysterious Ireland. Our guides are Stephen McPhillamy and Joe Darcy. I'd love to finish our, our conversation with just one place you particularly enjoy taking people to, to give them an appreciation of Ireland's distant and misty past. Joe Darcy. For me, it would have to be Newgrange, a 5,200-year-old monument just about 30 miles north of Dublin. And it was built by a Neolithic people. And these would have been around the time of the Tuatha Dé that I was talking about. It's a monument to honour the dead. And it's built in such a way that as the sun rises on the 21st of December, the winter solstice, the sun's rays penetrate a 55-foot-long chamber and light up the inner chamber. So wait a minute, this is a, a stone circle with a dome over it, like a sod-covered dome, is that right? Yeah. And then it's got one passage going to the middle. Yeah, but we're talking something that's 200 feet across here and 200,000 tons of material. And, and it's in darkness all year long. All year long, yeah. Until that one moment... When the sun's rays penetrate along the passageway, light it up, the sun continues to rise, the sun's rays disappear again, and that's it for the year. It happens on the day before the day after to a certain extent. Okay. But I never, ever get tired of going into Newgrange, yeah. and every time I go in, it wrecks my head. I figure, how could they possibly design this 5,000 years ago? There's it's no real. way we can really appreciate those no. civilizations. Yeah. Stephen McPhillamy. My favourite ancient site in Ireland is in the northwest. It's in Donegal and it's called Greenan Aliak. So it basically means the worshipping place of the sun. It's a circular ring fort. It's up on top of a what we call a mountain, but, you know, maybe a thousand feet hill. And it's uh, got a diameter of about 50 feet. And then the wall is probably 20 feet tall. And I love this site because it's a 2,000 year old ring fort. The ancient kings of Ulster used to be crowned here. And then they would stand and look over everything mm. that they possessed. And I also love it because it was built at a time when there was no borders in Ireland. It was just tribes and ancient clans. We didn't even feel Irish then. We felt our clan, your loyalty was to your clan and to your locality. So I, I like it because I'm from up there. But it's a pretty impressive site. And I think a lot of people going up that direction would love to take the effort and drive up to the top of the hill. And there won't be any big crowds up there. That's for sure. It's called Green on Aliak. But clearly, the more you know about what you can see and the better planned you are when you go to Ireland, the more you'll get out of your visit. Agreed. Stephen McPhillamy, Joe Darcy, thanks so much for sharing an appreciation of the mystic past of Ireland and how we can incorporate it into our travels today. Thanks, Rick. Thank you, Rick. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share the highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in a hundred essays. If you love Europe too, this is four decades of greatest hits in 400 pages made to order to stoke your travel dreams. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com. 